This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, we kick off Women's History Month with where the rubber meets the road on government infrastructure projects. I speak with the head of the Federal Permitting Council on how she works across agencies, state governments, and communities to get those projects done. And the second female Secretary of the Air Force on improving aircraft readiness. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Large federal infrastructure projects require coordination across agencies, state governments, and communities. The Permitting Council was established in 2015 to make the permit process seamless, transparent, and efficient to get those critical federal projects done. Christine Harada is the Executive Director of the Permitting Council. Christine, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so what is the Permitting Council and why was it established? So fundamentally, we serve as a central coordinating body for federal infrastructure permitting um, and requiring typically coordination between a number of different agencies. Uh, we were first stood up in late December 2015, largely for the purpose of ensuring that that process is carried out as efficiently, smoothly, and transparently as possible. So tell me about how the council is set up. You're the executive director, then what? Correct. So we are set up as with a governing body of 13 members, member agencies, typically the deputy secretaries at those agencies, agencies such as the Army Corps of Engineers, Department of Interior, Department of Defense, uh, Department of Agriculture, all the agencies that are involved in the permitting and environmental review and authorizations process. Um, the statute set up a set of governance rules as well as processes that are required of federal agencies to meet with respect to transparency and accountability. So it's essentially any agency that might have anything to do with an infrastructure project. That is correct. So before there was a permitting council, how was this handled? Uh, so there was a lead up of about 12 years worth of executive actions. We were first stood up as a presidential memorandum. Uh, certainly during the Obama administration, there was a lot of concerted effort, you may recall, with the ARA funds. Um, and we are officially codified into law, thankfully, because uh, Congress saw the value add of having such an entity. Um, and that was, of course, happening in late 2015. So before that, it was really just interagency collaboration on a one-off basis. But how, did, how would you have gotten a permit, say, to build a very large federal infrastructure project? Yes, so if you're a project developer, typically it's the project developer that is working with a lead agency, uh, but it is, upon, it is incumbent upon the project developer to coordinate themselves amongst the other cooperating or participating federal agencies. And so in this regard, we provide hopefully what uh, the project developers are considered to be a value-added service with respect to helping guide them what are the permits that you need, what's the sequencing, what agencies need to be involved, and by when. Okay, so give us an example. Start with a, a sample project, and how does it flow through that process? Yes, so once a project developer submits a, an application with us, and we deem it to be an appropriate infrastructure project, and there's certain criteria that are articulated in the statute, um, the agency has 14 days to make that determination. 
And this would be, say, a new road, a new highway, a new bridge, yes, something like that. Correct. In our case, uh, there are 12 specific sectors that are articulated in our authorities uh, to include things like renewable energy production, conventional energy, broadband, water infrastructure. So there's quite the gamut of projects that are available. Um, and so once a project developer, say, submits an application, uh, the agencies now then have 60 days by which we need to uh, develop a comprehensive project plan, identifying what are all the permits that are needed, by what agencies, how do we sequence those events to the greatest extent that we're able to estimate at this time. What's the total timeline from when the developer comes to you initially to when they're breaking ground? So that will depend on the type of project itself. Um, on average, uh, we find that our projects take about three, three and a half years to permit, and typically our projects are very large. Uh, they're well over $200 million. A lot of our projects right now are in the billions of dollars, and in fact, our overall portfolio is about $98 billion worth of projects uh, scattered throughout the United States. So tell me about the, the 13 members on the council and how you work with them. So we're fortunate to have a very fantastic, talented group of leaders at these agencies. Um, you know, we meet, the permitting council meets on a quarterly basis to discuss things like what are the issue resolution or resolving issues about various policy differences that might be coming up, um, you know, working through project sticking points or other scheduling type of issues, um, and, you know, overall ensuring that there's proper oversight and coordination across the various agencies. So tell us um, how you're coordinating with the state governments, with local communities, because a lot of people are going to be impacted by these large projects. Absolutely. Uh, one of the great things about our statute is that state governments can also opt into the process itself, and so therefore if they would like to participate, their uh, environmental reviews and authorizations can also be incorporated as part of the overall Gantt chart. Uh, we are working super closely with many state and local governments, particularly through organizations like the National Governance Association, uh, to ensure that they are ready um, and able to work collaboratively with us and as smoothly uh, as possible on the permitting front. There's certainly a lot of effort right now with the Infrastructure Implementation Task Force on ensuring that the funding is being distributed and that states are able to understand or know how to um, apply for the grant funding, et cetera. Soon thereafter, we'll be following on with the permitting section. All right, so what if a local community comes together and says, you know what, we don't want this huge project going on in our neighborhood? Certainly, so that is uh, something that is usually involved with the stakeholder engagement process that's articulated in NEPA or the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, that is a requirement certainly in statute itself. Uh, one can argue that some projects do it better than others uh, with respect to the degree uh, to which the local community or the effective communities writ large are actually engaged. Um, there certainly is an official process uh, that communities can and do go through in order to be able to make sure that their comments are being incorporated into the overall design. Okay, Christine, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back. Coming next, we continue speaking with Christine Harada on permitting for large government infrastructure projects. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm here with Christine Harada. She's the executive director of the Permitting Council. Christine, tell us about how you assess the environmental impact on communities, especially low-income communities? Yes, so there's a number of environmental reviews and authorizations that any large project must go through. The seminal law, of course, is NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, that articulates a very clear process by which communities are supposed to be able to participate in that process. 
um, you know, with a lot of the efforts in the administration underway with Justice 40 and whatnot, you know, we are working further to bolster that engagement that historically perhaps may not have been done as well. And how long does that environmental review take? So that um, can certainly vary depending on the project it's itself. Um, again, anywhere from two and a half to three and a half years, depending on the type of project See, that it is. See, that's a lot of time. It is certainly, and, and we need this infrastructure <laughs> to get to get put up. I mean, absolutely. Isn't there something you can do to to shrink that down? So we want to make sure that we are appropriately streamlining the process and making it as efficient as possible. I also am very committed to ensuring that we're not shortcutting the process itself. Um, you know, some project developers may believe that just by working with us that it's an automatic yes, or that we're accelerating your project, and that's certainly not the case. Our job is to make sure that everybody knows who's on first, what's on second, which authorization is up and when, so that communities know when to engage, so that local communities also know when potential projects might be coming down the pike. You know, from a workforce development, economic and local community development kind of perspective, this so now they can predict, now's the time we should be training up our folks to be able to go work on that particular construction site. You mentioned Justice 40, what is that? Justice 40 is an initiative and effort within the Biden administration to ensure that 40% of available funding is allocated towards uh, traditionally disadvantaged communities. Um, and it is a big commitment of this administration and a priority for us to ensure that we are um, doing right uh, by a lot of the environmental injustices uh, that have been um, experienced in the past. So how do you do that though? How do you direct those projects towards those particular communities? So typically the funding agency, those agencies that, that grant those types of funds, uh, for example, the Department of Housing and Urban Development or Transportation, um, in their grant making programs have been rethinking through how to best make sure that they are actually meeting the president's goals. So what is the climate and economic justice screening tool? Uh, so the Council of Environmental Quality just recently released the tool. Um, I'm quite a bit of a data nerd, and so it's a lot of fun to play with. I highly encourage you to uh, play around, if you will. But it's a tool that enables the government to be able to visualize, uh, leveraging a lot of GIS technologies, what are the traditionally disaffected communities, um, especially from an environmental justice type of perspective. Um, it's in a beta format at the moment, and so we highly encourage folks to play around with it, send us feedback about how they would want to use it, how might local communities want to use that data on a very, very granular basis. And when you say environmental justice, give us an idea of what you mean. Sure, absolutely. So I um, am originally from the Los Angeles area, uh, and many of the communities that are around the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach are heavily affected by a lot of air pollution, whether that be from the ships that are coming in to our ports, we are the largest port, I believe, in the United States. 40% of all goods from China come through the ports of LA and Long Beach, and all of that is shipped by truck. So that means large diesel trucks are running through a lot of these older, um, again, historically disadvantaged communities, you know, resulting obviously in air pollution, significant traffic congestion issues, which lead to a lot of health issues. I want to ask you now about wind energy, because the Biden administration has set a goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. A lot has to happen to reach that goal. How are you involved in that? Yes, so we are working very closely with most, if not almost all, of the wind offshore wind developers uh, that have projects in process underway, um, largely by, again, coordinating what their overall project plan will look like, what agencies need to be involved, when those permits need to be administered. And this is a new and burgeoning field for us as a nation. 
period. We are starting from scratch and it's just super exciting to me to be here at the start of it. That also means that we're doing a lot of learning. And so learning from a technical front, what kinds of environmental analyses do we need to conduct? Because these are problems that we've never had to think about before. Um, how do we ensure that the different agencies are, co are cooperating together uh, and sequencing things potentially a little bit differently than perhaps might have been in the past? Where are we right now on offshore wind? I mean, have projects gone up? Are we actually getting energy out of them? Uh, so we have just finished permitting uh, two of the projects within the Biden administration. The first one was off the coast of Massachusetts, and of course we just finished uh, all the environmental reviews and authorizations for the South Fork uh, wind farm in the New York Bight. Uh, so they broke ground a couple of weeks ago. Where, where are we on replacing lead pipes for water? Because that's also a, a Biden administration priority. Absolutely, and it's a super important one. Um, I, we are, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency has announced um, the, state, the granting mechanism by which that can be allocated by states, and so there's a big push out for that particular work. It's Women's History Month, Christine, and I wanted to ask you about your leadership and what advice you would give to women who want to become leaders in the federal government. Um, firstly, it's just a tremendous privilege and honor to serve in the government, and I'm very grateful um, for the opportunity, as well as for all the other women leaders who are serving in government. I think it's um, an incredibly important mission. For women in government that are aspiring for leadership-type positions, I encourage folks to really broaden their skill sets, follow the passion, whatever is work is really interesting for you, um, you know, go out and do it well, do it to the best of your abilities and do it well. Last but not least, find mentors and sponsors who are willing to stick their necks out for you, give you the opportunities that you might not otherwise have had. Do you find any particular challenges of being a woman in the federal government in a leadership position? No, actually, so having spent time in both public and private sectors, it's been my experience that certainly in the public sector, a lot more opportunities are forwarded to women and to people of color. Um, I started my career as an aerospace engineer, clearly a very male-dominated environment, um, and have experienced that for to over 20 years. And I'm so pleased right now to be working with so many women. It is absolutely amazing to see that the room is majority women these days. All right, Christine, thank you so much for being on the program, and we'll want to follow up with you and see what happens with these infrastructure projects. Absolutely. Coming next, the Air Force's mission capability rates of some aircraft is in the low 70% range. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Air Force can meet 100% mission capability readiness for all its aircrafts. We'll be right back. The Air Force's mission capability rates of some aircraft have remained in the low 70% range over the last few years. The Air Force needs to have a 100% mission capability rate when considering countering Russia or China. Deborah Lee James is the former Secretary of the Air Force. She's also author of the book, Aim High. Secretary James, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be back, Mimi. So you said this in 2015, quote, more than half of our combat air force is not sufficiently ready for a high-end fight, a fight against an enemy with complex integrated air defenses, surface-to-air missiles, and the capability to shoot us down. Secretary James, is that still true? I mean, what's the current state of aircraft readiness? The mission capability rates have improved since 2015, so it's not quite as dire a circumstance as existed some years ago. 
but it still isn't good enough. And there are at least uh, four factors that, that contribute to ongoing problems with mission capability rates. Um, I would say first and foremost is we have old aircraft in the Air Force and we have had great difficulty in retiring those aircraft over time. Congress has not permitted it. There has been more progress this last year than before, but the fact that the aircraft is old, it means they break down more frequently. Secondly is spare parts shortages, some of which they don't even make anymore because the aircraft are so old and some of which is supply chain problems due to COVID. Uh, the third reason is a maintainer mismatch. We reduced our maintenance workforce too much years ago when we were undergoing a downsizing. We've been hiring ever since, but of course you hire junior people and it takes years to grow them into more experienced uh, maintainers. So we have a mismatch of skills. And last is the budget. These constant CRs do not help. The uncertainty of the budget has hurt the mission capability rates as well. So given all those limitations, what can the Air Force do to improve its mission readiness rates? Um, is there anything they're doing now? Yeah, no, actually they're doing, they're doing quite a bit. It's a very tough problem. Uh, again, number one is the aircraft are very old and there's only so much you can do with, with old aircraft, but the Air Force I think is moving in the, the right direction and they're, they're getting creative, quite frankly. So for example, they are, um, they have a, very, a variety of process improvement teams that are fanning out across the Air Force that are looking at process changes that would free up aircraft more quickly and increase the ability to turn them around uh, more quickly. They're using predictive analytics. They're using AI. They're using 3D printing in order to print some of these uh, spare parts that manufacturers simply don't make anymore. And this will shave a few days off of this aircraft fleet or that aircraft fleet. They're also pushing more capability out across the Air Force to a variety of bases in the Air Force to allow some additional maintenance to take place at home scene rather than having to send those aircraft uh, off to the depot or off to some other location. That too saves uh, days. And then the final one that comes to my mind is they're trying to do a better job of just flat out scheduling. There are 60 day maintenance requirements on many aircraft fleets and they're trying to schedule that 60 days to happen at a time when it would not interfere with either operational matters or with training times. So just better scheduling can help. So all of these are in the right direction. They need to just keep it up. You know, there's the unmanned Reaper attack drone. It, it has a mission capable rate of 91%. Why do you think that number is high as opposed to some of the other aircraft? You know, that's a good question. And I, I'm not sure I'm really qualified to say, but my guess is it's a, one of the newer airframes. It's not quite as old as some of the, 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 the oldest that we have in our fleet. Because it's newer, the spare parts are more available. Um, it uh, is also flown, of course, remotely. So uh, it may not be undergoing some of the terrible uh, weather conditions and the brutal, harsh conditions on the ground that aircraft have dealt with for years in the Middle East. So it comes back to a, a less harsh environment, I'll say. So this is speculation on my part, but of course that's where we'd like to see all of our aircraft fleets be, up in that 90% level. Well, Secretary James, uh, changing gears here a little bit, you know, this week kicks off Women's History Month and you were the second female secretary of the Air Force. Tell us a little bit about what your experience was like. 
Well, I think for as long as I live and whatever else I may do in my life, and I'm doing some pretty interesting things now, that will forever be the most humbling, the most purposeful, the best job, the best opportunity that I've ever had um, for, for leadership and to hopefully make a positive impact on an important organization, important mission, and a lot of people. So it was great. So what ways do you think you were uh, more effective as a leader because you're a woman? Well, you know, I think, I'm not sure this is because I'm a woman, but I think what women need to do, really what everyone needs to do, is they need to play to their strengths in uh, jobs and opportunities, professional environments. Uh, and we have to be self-aware enough to know that we're not strong at everything, but play to your strengths. Don't undersell those strengths. Bring them to the table. Bring your best game every day. So for example, in my case, um, I had never served in combat. I've never served in uniform. So this is an area where I would never try to out combat pilot the combat pilot, if you will. That's where you have to sit back. You have to listen. It's a team environment after all. But what I did bring to the table, I did bring knowledge of how to get things done in the Pentagon from a bureaucratic perspective. I understood policy. I had been on Capitol Hill, so I understood budgets and how things happen or don't happen in the Congress. And I also had had a business career. So after all, we depend on the business community uh, to do an awful lot of what we need done in the Air Force. So the ability to partner and so on, I think that was another strength that I brought to the table. So no one is strong at everything but everybody is strong at something. And I think we women sometimes undervalue our strengths. So bring your best game every day and don't undervalue your strengths and make sure you've got a good team surrounding you. All right, well, Secretary James, thanks so much for that. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us and get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. 
Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.